Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Today, actually, I'm not going to have a conversation except to the degree that one can have a conversation with oneself or through oneself because I'm not going to directly ask myself questions because that's a little... That's a little kooky. I mean, I do talk to myself on occasion, but uh, I think there's nothing wrong with it. We all have voices in our head. That's one thing that's uh, perfectly clear. Uh, But uh, I will not be attempting to channel them uh, directly today. Uh, Today is going to be the the last show for the summer. Uh, As I've mentioned in a few previous episodes, I'm going to take a break uh, over the next couple of months, partly because I'm so busy. I'm doing tons of travel, uh, conferences, festivals, lots of talks, uh, and uh, doing a weekly show on top of that is uh, a bit uh, twisted, (laughs) challenging. Um, And I also just wanted to uh, take the time to step back and think about the show and uh, how I I want it to develop, which way I want it to go, uh, whether to do something else, whether to refine in which way, whether to set up a Patreon, blah, 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 all these things that I've kind of mentioned before people have probably tuned into um, a little restlessness uh, on my part. But I've been doing this show, I, I can't re- remember the exact first date, but I'm pretty sure it was the fall of uh, 2009. So it's, it's basically been a decade. Um, and I wanted to, I don't know, reflect a little bit about the show uh, and doing podcasting and what I was intending to do and how it developed and shifted and uh and then also probably talk a little bit about my new book high weirdness and the two are actually kind of related because the reason i started the podcast is that i've been a whatever you want to call it culture critic uh cultural journalist since the late 1980s professionally and even before that in terms of stuff I did in college, and I always like to balance my uh, academic work with uh, stuff about popular culture. I came of age in the intellectually in the 1980s when it was was sort of the first wave of what we now call cultural studies, and that that term has you know changed a lot. I think it has very different meanings now, and it's bound up with certain identity politics that was always part of the picture, but in a different way than I think it was in the 80s. There was always a sort of um, Marxist materialist side to cultural studies, but it also just allowed people to go, hey, let's just look at this stuff and take it seriously and, you know, combine our uh, analytic uh, aspirations with our juicy fandoms and then just see how far this is going to go. So I was always really into cultural journalism and really enjoyed being a freelance writer in the late 80s and the 90s. And uh, really through the early 2000s, and I've, you know, I've kept it up since then, occasionally doing pieces, but I did it quite a lot for a while. And, you know, one of the things is you just get kind of used to it. You get a little addicted maybe to uh, both having a kind of feedback relationship with what's happening in the now, you know, the new latest books, latest music, latest movies, latest events, new subcultures, uh, the sort of desire to be part of the flow of history by um, commenting on it and writing about it, and it's particularly in my case, writing about things I thought were wonderful. I I didn't write too many negative reviews. Um, I wasn't that interested in being like a critic with a capital C. Uh, instead, I would kind of write about things that inspired me 
And sometimes probably I was as interested in the inspiration as in the actual artist. Sometimes people would go like, I, I, I listened to that heavy metal record you wrote about and it, it wasn't as interesting as your piece. And I think it was partly because I just like to write through my resonances, through the things that stimulated me. But it's also a way of like keeping your hand in or being part of the conversation, even though, of course, it's mostly sitting alone. Uh, at a desk. And of course, all that's shifted through the internet and the sense of communication, the sense of writing, the democratization of cultural criticism. I mean, everybody really is a music critic now. Um, and so the idea that it's a separate role uh, that you'd get paid for is, is, is kind of absurd, even though some people still make it work. And some of my friends are still at it. And I have a great admiration uh, for them. But, you know, throughout the 2000s, I still like to, to write uh, write criticism, write journalism, um, even as I was working on, on books and other projects. Um, and when it came time to go to, uh, uh, to, when I decided to go in a PhD program, I said, okay, finally going to do it. I knew that I was going to be drawn into a lot more reading and writing in an academic mode. I wasn't going to have a lot of time to write uh, journalism or write criticism. Um, I did do a few things when I was uh, at Rice, but I mostly was just like, ah, you know, it's just kind of a hassle. So wait, I know, I'm a, I'm, I got the gift of gab. I'm good on my feet. Uh, I've been giving talks since the, you know, the early 90s and, and increasingly extemporaneously. Uh, so I was like, well, I'll just, do, I'll just do a podcast. And, you know, podcasts were already groovy at the time. Uh, and so I started talking to people and it was a, a wonderful, it's been a wonderful way to, again, keep my hand in, in the sense that left to my own devices, I can, I can get kind of hermetic, uh, you know, go down my own uh, rabbit holes and, uh, personal tunnels. And there's something about the call to keep paying attention to what's coming out, uh, not to just, you know, fetishize the new. In fact, a lot of guests I've had didn't necessarily have some new, you know, consumer commodity on the market uh, or they had done things years before and I was still interested in them or I just discovered them myself, but just a way to kind of keep leaning out uh, of one's own hermetic tendencies um, into conversation. And that was always really obvious to me that, that while I like doing interviewing, and obviously the show is partly about interviewing, um, I, I like the skill set of being able to uh, you know, kind of listen closely and sort of see where there are opportunities and little interesting points or alleyways in someone's speech and going, oh, let's go down that way and see what see what lies there and, and developing a sense of, of a connection even in the public sort of visible medium of, of an interview. But I always wanted to steer the interviews towards this idea of conversation. And, and partly was because I just wanted to talk too. like I wanted to say what my ideas were or what I was interested in. And early on, especially people were sometimes get get some negative feedback that I was just going on too much. And uh, yeah, yeah let's, let's hear a little bit more of the guests because they wanted more of the, the interview format. And, you know, sometimes it was true. I'd listen back to things and I'd go, man, just, just shut up. You know, like, let's keep, let's keep moving. So I think over the years, I've, I've developed a better uh, balance between, uh, uh, you know, my own riffing and asking questions. But it wasn't just about riffing. It's more that when, when you're riffing and your conversation partner is riffing, then you find yourself in new places. 
and sometimes emotional places, sometimes conceptual places, uh, sometimes new angles on things. Um, and that was always the sort of drive of the show. Early on, I think in like, you know, maybe within two years, maybe it was like 2011 or something, I had one conversation where this guy had written a book about, you know, the future of consciousness and technology or whatever. And, you know, I read it and, you, you know, I, I often knew a lot of people that I was talking to and I have throughout the, the conversation. Most of the people on the show are either people I know or know that I would like to know, you know, in a, on a personal or at least peer-to-peer level. Uh, so it's been a way to kind of socialize as well in this kind of strange public format, both to keep up with people who I, I've lost touch with or I haven't talked to for years, who, who I met because of the work they do or because I had interviewed them before or we had mutual friends who were working or, or producing art or culture. Uh, so it was a way to keep up with people and then also to weave new people into this kind of loose network of, of contacts, people that I might be able to call later or run into and have that sense of, of, uh, of connection. But, you know, I also just sort of throw the dice and I'd see the book title and just intuitively choose to do it. And I tried to make my decisions about guests as informally and quickly and spontaneously as possible because, well, frankly, I wanted to spend as little time on the show as possible. That was the goal. I'm not getting any money. Uh, let's just make it as spontaneous as possible. Book the guests quickly. I would read the books. That's the one thing that I, I wasn't too into uh, being too superficial with. Uh, and then have the conversation, not a lot of prep, not a lot of questions written down, unless the guest is into it. Let's just start talking uh, and, and trust to, uh, that that was going to go somewhere uh, interesting. But in this one case, I got, so I, I kind of intuitively got this book and it was a little businessy or kind of mainstream in a slightly suspicious way. And then when I got on the conversation, the dude was like 100% about talking points. He had clearly like studied, re, you know, uh, repeated himself over and over again with the, the set answers. And he did that thing that, you know, professional radio interviews do where doesn't matter what the question is, they just get to the talking point and it's like this obvious gap where you're like, you're not actually listening to me, we're not having a conversation, this is like this scripted event and it, it really pissed me off. I mean, I didn't get angry during the show, but I got like, uh, sort of just not, I mean, I was just kind of, I mean, if you knew me, you could tell that I wasn't into it anymore, but you know, hey, the guy's doing his thing, it was interesting enough. But after that, I was like, no more of that. So I was very wary about any kind of pop book that was just out, just out, and they were on the tour, and and then I would get more aggressive about asking questions that would break people from their scripts. Although they usually didn't have to do that because I just got better at at getting people who who were interesting and wanted to actually talk uh, rather than just shill. Um, but that was a, a sort of interesting factor uh, that, that came in pretty pretty soon and clarified this desire I had to do conversation. And, you know, conversation uh, isn't just about, you know, me being able to talk to or uh, having, you know, an, a, an opportunity to explore my own ideas because I would be interested in people because they were resonating with things that I was thinking of. But it's something deeper than that. And I think it's actually one of the reasons that podcasts remain, I think, one of the more hopeful aspects of our current uh, media environment uh, and and that is that they in, when there are conversations especially when they're unscripted not I'm not talking so much about the shows that are written and produced 
like docudramas or or whatever the or single person shows i'm talking about all the all the conversations out there that they model conversation and conversation is one of those things we take for granted um but can actually leave our lives if we're not paying attention you know we just you know we might exchange mouth noises with people but not really have a conversation where you're asking each other questions that might be hard that might require vulnerability that might require saying i don't know or like that's really confusing to me or i still don't know what to think about that you know and 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 getting out of the mode of expertise that kind of slips into to the podcast or to interview formats where like the interviewer is asking someone who's like an expert a question and then there's this pressure to answer it uh, even if you're the best answer is I don't know or I'm confused about that or I have contradictory feelings about that and if unless we start doing that uh, in a vulnerable but open-minded way I mean we're never going to get outside this, these ruts we're in I, I, I'm not sure we are anyway but one little you know kind of small utopian gestures towards the possibility of people having uh, a real conversation now admittedly I'm not you know, bringing on people who have radically different political views, although often radically different ontological views. Um, I, I have tried to have people on who are, uh, you know, conservative Christians or conspiracy theorists or paranormal, paranormal advocates or super hardcore, uh, you know, atheist skeptics. And, you know, I've always had some of those on, but I usually it seemed a little better to have someone a little closer uh, in affinity and then kind of see where you can find places of of uh, exploration and, and vulnerability and questions uh, through that through that mode, but I really believe that the modeling of conversation uh, in a public way is, is an important part of maintaining public space, of maintaining uh, I don't want to say consensus reality, but but the sort of uh, yeah the public as an environment that we're all sharing in. And sometimes I feel like, wow, you know, I've, I've developed all these skills. Maybe the best thing for me to do is to try to find people who really are on the other side of any number of fences, who are harder for people like me to talk to, but who, if they're willing to actually have a conversation and not just spiral off into, you know, anger and, and uh, accusation, um, to do that, to, you know, go around and just talk to, talk to conservatives or you know, and but it's it's so complicated now because everything's so weaponized and so polarized that it's very difficult to do that kind of thing. And so the the, the little bit that I've done, I'm I'm happy about. But sometimes I think about the value of, of being more explicit about finding people on the other side of the fence who want to talk about things and and explore mutual differences. And um, it, it would be fascinating, but it's 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 in a way it's a lot more work. Uh, it's also a lot more dangerous and a lot more vulnerable. Uh, and while I think the vulnerability of podcasting is, is part of what's attractive to it, I'm not interested in, in radical vulnerability in the way that our, uh, I don't trust our contemporary media environment enough for that. Uh, so in, in, in any way, in any case, uh, one, there were some negative aspects of my, uh, my desire to do the show quickly and spontaneously. Um, though it's been a, in general, a, a, a good life lesson for me. I remember the first time I gave uh, a public lecture. It was on Philip K. Dick. It was called Philip K. Dick's Postmodern Gnosis, very early 1990s. And I prepared, you know, I didn't, I didn't write it out. I didn't read it, but I, I 
prepared pages and pages and pages of quotes and like writing out the ideas and kind of, you know, referring to it throughout the talk. But, you know, then I noticed afterwards, I was like, you know, I didn't really read it that much. I was mostly kind of riffing because I can do that. And then I was like, dude, if you like get better at not preparing, that means like the amount of time that you're going to put into giving talks is going to decrease. And that's more fun, you know, or more laziness or sloth or slack or whatever. Um, so that seemed appealing to me. So you both, it, you kind of increase the, the risk because you could blow it, not knowing, oh gosh, I didn't write through that. So there's a little bit more of an edge, but then when it's working, it's a little bit more like jazz because you're riffing. And sometimes I'll say things that I don't, I hadn't planned to say, I hadn't never thought before. And sometimes I even forget them. I was like, wow, there was some brilliant thing I said you know, 20 minutes into that talk. I should have written it down. <laughs> you know, and I'm not one to listen to myself afterwards. And that's actually part of the same loop. You know, just put it out there and just keep on cruising down the, down the dusty road. Uh, and don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about um, Alan Bishop from the Sun City Girls talked about that because what they did, their underground sort of punk noise, psychedelic, uh, ethno weirdo band, uh, one of the great bands of the American underground. And they just put out tons of recordings in small runs. And that was how they did it. They put out a thousand records. And then, you know, two weeks later, another one. And they put out all these records, all these CDs, all these cassette recordings. Um, and I asked Alan about that. And he was like, look, it's all about keeping going, not holding stock. Like, he's like, don't, I don't want boxes of, of records in my basement. I want to put it out, put it out there. And some of the stuff we put out is, was jewels. And some of it was pterodactyl shit. And we just keep going. And there's something about that that I really liked, and I kind of adopted that to, for the podcast. But the obvious sign of that attitude that was, you know, probably less than pleasant for many listeners, and, and actually a turnoff for some, was the, the poor sound quality that I allowed the show to, to possess long after I should have gotten my, my act together. I mean, part of it was just uh, doing a show initially with Maja Dau, who was a great friend of mine, and I, something, someone I always wanted to do like a talk show with because we had that kind of funny, you know, side. She was like a, a funny sidekick style, and then always would ask questions from weird angles that I couldn't predict. And she was more, a little more woo than me, but also really punk rock and spunky, and just like a great personality, great character. And so we had a lot of fun, the, you know, more than the first half of the show doing the talk, doing the stuff together. But we were in different places, so there was already like some noise on the line because we're basically over the phone and we can't see each other and we're talking over each other. And then I just didn't really pay that much attention to all the good sound quality tools that were, that were coming out. So, you know, I feel a little bad about that. People still dive into the archive and some people don't care and, and some people, some people do. And I, I mean, it was a little more intentional than that actually, because people would start to complain about the sound quality. And I was like, well, yeah, I could, I could fuss around with this and, uh, you know, you know, upgrade and, and get kind of uh, more more particular about it. But I, there's a part of me that also resists going too far down that path because, uh, you know, I think one of the good and bad things about the democratizing of media tools is that sort of initially there's this sense of like, wow, everybody can like explore a new way to use a new medium and and do it in all sorts of ways. It's sort of like, you know, like the Xerox machine can be a vehicle for a, a punk fanzine that's made out of like cutting up other Xeroxes and taping them together on a piece of paper and then putting them through the Xerox machine. Well, that's obviously not what it's designed for. But 
the problem is, is as the tools get better and as the tool makers outcompete each other with, with features, there's a sort of unspoken pressure to make the tools more and more professional, slick, sounding high quality. And I totally respect sound quality and fetishes for sound quality. And I totally appreciate why some people were like, with my show, it's just too crappy. It exhausts me. I don't want to hear it. And it really wasn't until I was recognizing how many people listen to these th- things in earbuds, which I don't use, and uh, and how, how, how much of a drain that could be on people's attention that I really sort of said, yeah, look, okay, let's, let's get our act together. But it took me, it took me a while, a while to do. And it was for a similar reason that, that, I, that I ultimately uh, stepped aside from the conversations with Maja. I thought they were really a lot of fun. It kept me on my toes because I didn't know what she was going to, what she was going to ask. And sometimes she'd ask things from, from, you know, to, you know, left field or my version of left field made sense to her. And uh, it made for some really sprightly conversations and sometimes some kind of puzzling ones. Uh, but I love the doing it with her. But the technical aspect of um, talking over each other and whatever, and we just never upgraded to a, a more kind of face-to-face through Zoom or Zencaster or whatever uh, to do that. So we just it ended up, um, it was just easier after a certain point to go my own way. And the conversations could go uh, in, in directions that were more intimate to some of my um, obsessions. And so, you know, it's been a, it's been a really, it's been a really fun ride, uh, for all this stuff. And, and while I'm definitely interested in, in continuing it, people like the show, they like my approach. I can get away with this sort of, uh, small prep, uh, on my feet style. And, uh, so it doesn't take too much time. Um, but there's something about the weekly grind of it that's getting a bit much. And, and also a lot of listeners have have commented on the length of the show and sometimes there's some anxiety at the end of the show because they know that it's ending but we're middle of of an interesting point um and there's a lot of reasons to 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 uh extend things as well um sometimes i've thought about doing shows with different focal point uh so that's why i'm stepping back just give it some time see what happens read some feedback you know and I've, i've gotten so much great feedback over the years, and it you know really does uh, make make a difference. Um, although that's worth kind of talking about a little bit. It's just the whole way of like judging the value of the show or the value of it as something in my life that I'm not getting paid for through feedback. And what's feedback? Our number you know numbers are feedback. Uh, individual email is feedback. A package of totally bizarre. Uh, mini zines in the mail is feedback. You know, CDs that I hadn't asked for are, are kind of feedback. Lots of books now. You know, I get a lot of books for free. A lot of them aren't things I'm interested in. Um, but, you know, it, that's another kind, you know, at least when they're not asked for, is a kind of feedback. And it's interesting, the tension between, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago or even last week, the tension between quantitative and qualitative models of feedback. The whole game, like the game, the big media thing is is based so much on quantity, so much on numbers, because the numbers are really extraordinary. I mean, how much a kind of obscure YouTube channel can get, you know, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, a million, you know, of, of hits or or even subscribers for things that are just kind of peculiar or goofy or, or marginal in some sense. 
and you know podcasts are a, a similar game and some of the you know top top notch characters get you know really good numbers and then they can translate that into a living uh and that's you know that's pretty pretty awesome i i never i didn't frankly look at my numbers for like six years um it was almost like a a a decision like an abstract decision not to look at the numbers so that i did not start judging myself or the quality of the show based on numbers and my internal logic for this i think is still pretty coherent which is that uh, it goes like this is like there's some people out there who are let's say are making podcasts or writing things that I think are are stupid um, they're they're bad they they are they have low ethical motivations they're it's not funny it's not intelligent uh, it's it's even pernicious in some ways it's cheesy it's easy you know, and it doesn't matter. I don't have to name anybody. I'm sure everyone hearing this can put your own figures in these various categories. And yet, if I look at characters like that, and then I go look at their numbers, I realize sometimes those numbers are very robust. So the fact that you have numbers, just like the fact that you have fans, says absolutely nothing about the quality of your work, the value of it. So for me, it was like, what's the point? Unless I actually want to change the show based on these numbers, you know, and kind of start to like refine the feedback loop. So, oh, more listeners if I do shows on psychedelics. Okay, I'm going to do more shows on psychedelics to get more listeners, which is what a lot of people do. Again, it's part of the game now of like creating a a listenership or creating a fandom and then like feeding them what they want. And then that's more what you do as a cultural producer, because now you've got this growing horde of of folks who follow you or listen to you or even buy your stuff or at least draw advertising uh, to them and and thereby to you. So I just didn't, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to do that. And then uh, 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 connected with that is another idea, which is like, you know, having people who just listen to you because they think you're cool is different than having people listen to you who need to listen to someone like this, who are thinking about similar things, struggling through similar things, and maybe sometimes in a way that's actually quite harrowing. Uh, And so I would rather have, you know, two of those guys than 200 just like fans who are just like, oh, Eric Davis is cool, whatever, who don't, who are like, yeah, wow, UFOs, psychedelics. You know, it's, that's, I mean, it's all right, it's fine. I, you know, I like, I like everybody, uh, or try. And, but so that, that also adds an interesting twist and that has to do partly with the other side of my work, which is that in some ways I'm an intellectual and produce scholarly material. In other ways, I'm not, or at least I'm not a conventional uh, intellectual, or I'm a public intellectual or a counter-public intellectual is how I kind of think of it, because I've never been interested in speaking directly to like the mainstream public. I've never had the aspiration to be like a a recognizable face in the New York Times op-ed section, you know, that kind of public intellectual. And there's tons of those guys. They get their authority or their their job in the academy, and then they they don't want to just stay in in scholarship, and so they go towards the mainstream. I wanted to go towards the underground, but, but have some of that um, that kind of academic uh, uh, skill set and richness as, as well. 
so then that also applies to how you do shows. And so I've always been into uh, still doing things, occasionally having shows that are that are super nerdy, where I talk to scholars and we go for it. We're like in the soup, and it's but it's not for academic audiences. And there's a lot of podcasts that are very focused on scholarship or people who have had certain kinds of training. And I always really wanted to like bring that stuff in, but remix it or use language in a different way and kind of rely on the fact that when I'm speaking, I often kind of use slang and I'm, I'm, I'm a little sloppy and I make mistakes and I'm not like a super, uh, I'm articulate, but I'm not really sharp. Like I know people who are like, they sound like they're reading, you know, when they, when they're talking. Uh, Mark Derry is a great example. I mean, the dude, he talks in like amazing prose and he's just sharp. He's on top of all these phrases and sub clauses. And I'm a sloppier style, but the but my sloppy style, I think, sometimes makes people feel at ease. Uh, and so we can go into some arcane places and, you know, continue the fun and uh, and openness. So I really started this whole sh- uh, show because I was going into a PhD program. So the PhD program and the podcast were, were kind of tied uh, at, at, you know, together from the beginning. And with the publication of High Weirdness, in a sense, you know, basically a decade later, nine years from when I entered uh, Rice, the book version of my dissertation is out. So in some sense, this last dec- decade chapter of my life is coming to uh, to a close um, because I went in there. I always knew I wanted to write about Philip K. Dick. That was I always had my plot, plan and plot from the get go. Um, you know, a lot of times in grad school, a lot of what the the kind of social conversation is about people. You know, what project they're going to do their thesis on, and then they change their ideas and change their mind drastically. Maybe get a different advisor. You know, there's, that's a lot of like, oh, and there's a lot of anxiety. Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? And I always knew what I was going to do. So obvious. Philip K. Dick, religious experience, 2374, exegesis, gravy. You know, I had worked on, I got to work on the exegesis around the time that I was, you know, just before I was going to go to PhD program. And so I knew that this book was coming out and that people would pay attention to it, or at least some people, and that I had, you know, already read it a couple times and, and gotten nitty gritty with it. So it was just all set for me. Um, but even though that was always my plan, just to do the exegesis in 2374 and the nature of religious experience, yada, yada, uh, I had the, I had the whole thing plotted out. Like, you know, I had a Scrivener file and all the different chapters and sub chapters and gathering all the kind of a lot of the quotations and you know, huge number of selections from the exegesis. Um, and then just at the last minute, I quavered. I went, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do have a, a project that's just on on Philip K. Dick. I talk about this a little in the introduction to high weirdness. Um, there are two main reasons. One is that I I think I had a psychic like a little a little medical shaman kick in that was like do not spend the next four years of your life inside philip k dick's brain with no relief there was something about getting lost in the matrix of rabbit holes that is the exegesis that kind of uh stilled my soul (laughs) but more important than that it was the sense that for one thing there was you know, a lot of attention on, on Phil Dick, even though there hadn't been that much attention on the 
religious stuff or the religious side of the story, but it was more and more. But also the sense that no matter how interesting and how profound and how novel my discoveries in writing were, it was still about this one very peculiar guy. So if you weren't into this one very peculiar guy, peculiar brilliant guy, then it didn't really have much play. It didn't really connect outside of that. And it also kind of remained about the singular personality. But as I was doing the research for 2374 and thinking about it and thinking about it, not just in terms of Phil Dick's life, but also in terms of the early 70s, which is a period of time I've always been fascinated with since since my undergraduate years when some friends and I were were all very into the 70s and we did like a zine on the 70s and nobody was talking about the 70s at that point because it was the mid 80s it was like too soon um and i've always been interested in the period and collect things from the period and listen to a lot of music from the period a lot of films etc etc so it's always been an interest of mine so i was thinking about dick's 2374 through this whole question of like the 70s what's the 70s you know what, what is it about and then in so doing i you know i had to acknowledge that there were these other experiences that people were having at that time and Robert Anton Wilson's serious transmissions were, were obvious, as well as the Tim Leary's uh, uh, similar extraterrestrial communications that he had while he was in prison. Uh, I had remembered that there was uh, a fascinating story that Lily tells about being on a plane in 1973 or 74 and having the, the solid state intelligence tell him he was about to, they were going to like demonstrate their power by shutting down the airport. And then the pilot comes on and says, oh, we're going to have to land at a different airport, which seems to have been a, a, a true or true-ish story. Uh, of course, Lily was on ketamine at the time, but, you know, but there was a, a sort of diverted aircraft around the time when he was saying from, that was headed towards LAX. So who knows uh, what's actually going on there, but it seems real enough. Uh, in any case, the, there were more and more of these stories, and of course, also uh, Terence McKenna's tale. And what was interesting about these tales is that a lot they, they shared a lot of features. There was some science fictional element, a kind of cosmic consciousness, some sort of entity contact. They felt like religion, and yet also did not feel like religion. And that was an important part. There was some way in which they 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 had the the tenor or the vibe or the structural character of traditional or classic religious experience, at least as we've come to think about it in the 20th century uh, after William James kind of made religious experience this thing that we think about and that becomes essential to religion because you can definitely talk about religion and not talk about religious experience. But for modern Westerners, it's become like this very important category. And these guys were sort of doing that and sort of not. And the way in which they were not was partly because it often involved drugs, uh, and and drugs aren't religion. I mean, they overlap, but it's it's. I think it's different to think of them as a different category of thing. Uh, and they, so that was a whole element. But there was also a kind of pop cultural media consciousness, as if kind of McLuhan was lurking in the background. Something about new media, about cybernetics, about. The, the growth of networks around or, or, or pop culture or underground comics or FM radio or satellites. I mean, it was this sort of this era of analog media 
and and the emergence of kind of digital networks around this 1960s 1970s period also seemed to keep appearing within these uh, these visions that people were were having. So when I decided that I didn't want to do solely focus on Dick, it was really it actually became really clear. I wanted to write about the 70s and I wanted to write about multiple experiences and to show how they had these shared features to allow those features to resonate and then try to attempt to talk about why, like what connected these things? Why were they all happening at the same time? What is the secret um, the secret sauce that links Robert Anton Wilson and Terrence McKenna, you know, Tim Leary and, and J- John Lilly and uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, all kind of West Coast figures and there's more, uh, more to mention. Uh, so that was a really clear project, and I didn't end up doing as as many of these experiences as I, as I had hoped because once I started writing about Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson, I realized that there's very little scholarly writing about them, like very little, just you know, a few essays here and there, basically, uh, and which kind of blew my mind. I mean, what important characters in different ways. Um, Terrence was already becoming a little bit more talked about because he's uh, formed such an important. Uh, kind of framework of thoughts and ideas more recently in 1990s into the 2000s of course he's still influential today because people still listen to his hypnotic uh, uh, raps and rants and so you know there was some stuff there but Robert Anton Wilson who in some ways is I think intellectually the most interesting of these guys it's at least philosophically uh, the most coherent and in some ways the most um resonant for our era there's very little writing about him very little acknowledgement there's very little sense outside of the people who were already robert anton wilson fans that robert anton wilson was worth reading and hanging out with uh and that again i kind of wanted to rectify so by combining those guys with philip k dick and uh and then writing about the 70s and some of these ideas about what links them with technology and changes in culture and communication uh that ended up being high weirdness and it's i'm so glad that i did it it's so much more satisfying a project i think um, because it invites you into not just these amazing individual stories but it, it it forces you to start thinking about what would connect them is it just that they were living at the same time in the same place and these were sort of ambient forces but if they were just ambient forces, why would they appear so intensely in the middle and the core of these experiences, especially something like extraterrestrial intelligence? Why did why extraterrestrial? Why why couldn't it have been you know some ancient god pantheon from from India or something? You know, even though those elements were there as well, there was something about the changes in technology and the loops between tech media and culture and consciousness that I think they were mobilizing or tapping into the way that, um, you know, you can think of like uh, uh, Pound's idea that poets are the antenna of the race. I think psychonauts are a different kind of antenna. Uh, And maybe they tune into the future, but they certainly tune into patterns of of experience that, that go deeper than our consciousness. And so by looking at especially when they're articulate and well-read, like all three of these guys were, when you look at them in that framework, they become kind of like palimpsests or, or like spore prints of the zeitgeist. So they, it's a very rich way of approaching 
some of these ideas, and, and I'm really happy uh, the book came out the way the way it did. And you know, so it's been very interesting to uh, hit the road, you know, talk about the book, talk about high weirdness, and um, it's funny. It's like I'm already getting some really interesting questions that I don't know the answer to. Uh, one of the ones that keeps coming up which I talk about a little in the book, but the more I think about it, the more un- unclear I am really about it, is how does this idea of the 70s weird, the, the kind of weirdness that lies at the heart of all of these ex- these different experiences alongside religion, alongside uh, you know psych- a psychedelic philosophy, there's this sense of the weird, sort of a, a, a little disturbing, a little crazy, or more than a little crazy, um, as much pop culture as as mysticism, uh, even kind of garish elements of, of pop culture. And here's the the great example is when uh, Terrence, who never was into UFOs, always thought people who were into UFOs were were crazy and being manipulated by intelligence agencies and not really worth any effort. Nonetheless, um, he saw a UFO, of course, in in, in during his experiences in in La Chirera. Uh, but he makes the point that the that the UFO resembled directly resembled hoax photographs of UFOs that were famously hoaxed from the 1950s, uh, and so this was a very strange but very interesting idea that like even if whatever intelligence or unconscious forces lay behind the the surface phenomenology of a trip, you know whatever part of you that would say okay now we're going to make a a, a UFO happen inside your 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 mind stream. That the fact that that UFO would then be obviously fake or referring to a fake UFO sort of points to the these deeper loops about the weird and about how cultural scripts engineer our experience, but also leave gaps and cracks in those those phenomena. And almost as a way to kind of remind us that they're just the surface of something else, that that's not the whole story. Uh, and I think that's a very rich way of approaching psychedelic experience that we see far far too little of, actually, where it's not that the visions themselves aren't important, but they're not the whole story. And in fact, part of the story is the way in which they're insufficient or the way in which they point beyond themselves or point back to you, but in a circuitous way that becomes uh, challenging to think about, and yet in that very challenge opens up to some of these larger questions about culture and consciousness and even politics. So that's sort of an element of the weird. But the question then is, what about now? Is weirdness still weird? And it's a really good one because we're, we're at this place where, as I say too often in this show, you know, all of these relatively marginal discourses and fields of experience and individuals and cultural producers and attitudes, perspectives are, are more and more visibly woven into, I don't want to say the mainstream because there's not a mainstream, but are, are, are just very visible and accessible to lots and lots of people. And they're just kind of part of this endless horizontal surface of possible reference and possible orientation that the internet and our current, you know, kind of moment of like cultural hyperproduction have given us. So in that space, is there weird? Well, sure. You know, our crumb is there. UFOs are there. 
Lovecraft is everywhere, and Lovecraft is a key feature of the weird, not just in terms of being a writer of weird fiction, but of someone who set in motion the helped set in motion or helped articulate the way that the tension between truth and fiction is part of the mechanism of the weird. And of course, that mechanism is now like, you know, taken off uh, in in some very uh, alarming ways in our current media environment. And, you know, once we start having videos uh, that are concocted and deep fake videos and, and, and tough to track and that's already happening i mean things are only going to get more and more surreal more and more weaponized more and more confusing the fog of war uh will become the status quo of of information processing i mean i'm sorry to say it i don't think there's a way out of that kind of thing so in some sense there's more and more of the stuff and yet at the same time there's a sense that the the edginess or the the sort of um, outsider quality of the weird, the subcultural force of it, even the kind of shockingness of it, is 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 dissipated. So what's really weird then? I mean, if everybody has a tattoo, tattoos aren't weird. Even if you look at the tattoo and it's a, you know, it's a rat fink from, you know, Big Daddy Roth from some car culture thing in the late 1950s when stuff like that was only. You you know enjoyed by marginal people by weirdos uh, by people that the society had decided were weirdos and so they had some kind of other space of resistance or alterity that they were that they were living in and, and kind of coming from and now that it's just pervasive uh, that that psychedelic imagery and ideas about psychedelics are kind of pervasive and other things like this then where is the weird and and i don't know the answer to that i'm not i'm not really sure i i think the 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 where i keep coming to um is that there's something about the relationship between weirdness and the banal and that part of what modern culture does is it it is it you know banalizes i don't guess that's how you pronounce it things and it renders material banal in its very reproduction, even as something that's exciting or novel or interesting. And that's sort of like an aspect of, of kind of consumer culture, of capitalism, where there's some edge. And in absorbing the edge or taking the energy from the edge in, it you know makes it more available. So in that sense, it's cool. But then in doing so, defangs it or... Uh, uh, you know, renders it just another another thing to do. One example from my book that's kind of a funny one is, you know, in, in, in 1971 when the last Apollo mission went to the moon, they brought like a golf ball in a queue and they were like hitting golf balls around the moon. And I'm like, to me, that like is just like a complete epitome of how we how we render things banal. You know, you, you go to the moon. My God, you go to the moon and you hit a golf ball around. It's so corny. It's so it's so dumb. And I mean, golf's fine, whatever. But there's something about that kind of tourist tackiness uh, that that seems to be a you know intrinsic part of modern culture. And so, as explorers of the edge, or as psychonauts, as visionaries, as people taking spiritual practices seriously, taking our own altered states seriously, we also have to recognize that we're all part of a process that, in some ways, is rendering those things banal. And in fact, the game is to not acknowledge or recognize the way in which they're banal. So maybe. The true weird has to do with really embracing 
the banal. And that doesn't just mean the ordinary everyday where like, oh, it's this bowl of cereal one more time with the same cracked bowl and this dusty spoon that I've been doing. You know, it's not just the ordinary or the banal in that sense. It's that the actual texture of everyday life now is weird. And it's weird in some very disturbing ways because it's implicated in all these other historical changes, climate change, the rise of surveillance capitalism, the house of cards that's, that's you know, international finance, all of these things that are, are worrying so many of us and, and, you know, upsetting so many of us for so many good reasons. They're, they're, they're visible or stitched into the very fabric of the ordinary. And to my mind, that's where like the, the genuine weird uh, is, is calling us. Because in order to engage these experiences, or not experiences, these situations with open eyes, we have to be willing to take on their disturbing character, their, their enchanted character, their you know, irrational uh, vibrations, if you will, and even their horror. And there's a very significant relationship between weird and horror uh, as a genre, but also as a kind of aesthetic character. So to really embrace and engage the world that we are on a feeling level, and that's what aesthetics is. It's not just art. It's a feeling level, how it feels to be alive and present to our world uh, as it is now requires a passage through and even an embrace of the weird. Uh, of the the disturbing, the uncanny valley, the strangeness of the even the very idea of artificial intelligence, the fact that all these mundane objects in our life, the plastic bottles that we use, are just you know absolutely intimately related to the spread of microplastics throughout the oceans and and entering into the food chains and our own bodies, and that we're just absolutely woven into all these processes that are deeply uncanny and strange and weird as Tim Morton ta- likes to talk about it and talked about it on this show a few years ago that that uh, quality of, of the weird has to do with waking up to the reality of, of climate change or the reality of the in- tremendous interdependence that determines and characterizes and, and shapes us and, and it's something that a lot of the mainstream stories want us to ignore, you know, or, or conventional uh, Western ideas that we're, we're individual selves, we're rational, we make decisions, uh, we have dreams, we fulfill them, we have pleasures, we pursue them. And that sort of model of the, of the ego as, a, as the driving element of modern culture is now like so rickety, and yet there's an anxiety around maintaining it that way. And that is, has has, uh, you know, drifted into a lot of the spiritual searching and psychedelic work or whatever that we're, that, that I've talked about for so, for so long, in the sense that it's still about this self that is improving itself, discovering itself as part of an, it's achieving something, it's going towards something. And that's such a seductive narrative, not just because it fits into whatever modern western ideology but because it prevents you from facing this creepy disturbing even apocalyptic sense of what it means to not just be that i mean we are that sometimes making decisions you know trying to improve ourselves facing our fears 
you know, going through our spiritual process, having dreams, exploring altered states. But, you know, for me anyway, over time, it becomes more and more clear that all of that work is, is embedded in all these relations, relations I choose, relations I have no choice but to acknowledge or accept that I don't want to, the way in which I'm a his, product of history, a product of social systems. And we're, we have to kind of do both. But I think that one way of really being okay, as much as we can be okay with it, but at least beginning to open up to the consequences of our interdependence and our links of responsibility and affect and plastics and food and all the ways in which we're woven into um, this very peculiar uh, historical moment that by cultivating and being okay with the weird that we're, we're able to go in there because the weird is kind of like, you know, enchantment without uh, utopia, you know, enchantment without the kind of religious idea of some final uh, mis- wonderland or some, you know, great uh, encounter with the divine that suddenly bathes all existence with um, harmony and hope. Uh, and that while those things I think are woven into the world that I'm talking about, certainly woven into the experiences of the three dudes that I talk about, more importantly is a, is a kind of enchantment or openness to alterity, you know, otherness in its full sense that has a, a more disturbing character and disturbing because it's threatening to the ego. It's threatening to the humanist worldview, the human model of what, what, what's, what's alive, what's not alive, what's good, what's bad, um, what's, what's helpful for humans, what's not, you know, that those, all those questions and, and lines get, get challenged as we embrace our, let's call it post-human condition. And I don't mean post-human in like, let's become immortal and, and put ourselves in robot bodies and go out into the cosmos so that we can, I don't know, slave away extracting rare earths from asteroids and enjoy the ride or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, post-human in a way of like, what does it mean to no longer think in strictly humanist contexts, even as we go on being human? Uh, and, and that transition, which is a weird transition, my relationship to animals, my relationship to bacteria and my gut, my relationship to my, to the unconscious, my relationship to the machines that increasingly track me and, and anticipate my own psychological phenomenology and try to nudge it. I mean, this is all very weird stuff. And so I, I really think of this as, um, it can look on the surface like it's, a bit, uh, I don't know, reveling in the peculiar or the peculiar for its own sake. But I actually think the development of this sensibility is um, is political. <laughs> uh, is it has to do with our the way in which we orient ourselves to the way the world is now, and also helps us orient ourselves to those con- that continued existence of the outside of what is beyond what we know what is in the mind that that strikes us as impossible, uh, whether it be things that people lump under the category of the paranormal, or whether it be experiences and connections with non-human forms of intelligence or agency that people experience in their dreams, in their trips, even in their work with plants or animals or uh, technologies for that matter. 
that the weird also is a way of keeping open to the other, you know, and the other is what we is also includes what we really just don't know the cosmic other, the others that surround us invisibly. Um, and so to be open to the building of an interface that almost by nature has to be uncomfortable, has to feel not quite right. Like, oh, this is a little bit off. This is a little too strange. This isn't going to help. This isn't going to clarify. This isn't going to help my achievement self continue to achieve. This isn't going to help my, um, you know, my business, uh, you know, necessarily, maybe it will, depending on what your business is. But there's a, a deeper call towards the outside or the beyond. Uh, which is something that runs throughout high weirdness and that, um, you know, I, I left purposefully undefined. And that's the kind of intellectual I am, where even though I'm very interested in systems and thought and analysis and critique and cultural context and, uh, you know, not taking the surface story to be the truth and, you know, enjoying suspicion as a mode of analysis that for all that, I also think it's incredibly important to keep the door open. You keep the door open for the other, for the conversational partner, for the inspiration you can't predict, for the weird encounter you can't wrap your head around, uh, for possibilities, even utopian possibilities that we can't really perceive right now, and to stay open in that open-hearted way, not just ready for anything, uh, but ready for good things even in the midst of a situation where we're also called to encounter others that are more and more challenging for us uh, because they are participating in this um, moment of planetary uh, human trauma <laughs> that there's really uh, uh, that we're called upon to face that is in the classic sense of the term as meaning fate are weird. And so with that as a closing note, have a wonderful summer, and yes, keep your minds open.